Hey, everybody. I'm here uh, on the Best You Podcast with Dr. Phil Hellman. Dr. Phil, what's going on? Not much, Jeremy. Uh, doctor, do you prefer to be called doctor? Or do you just like <laughs> Phil? Do you like Mr. Helm? What do you prefer? I don't really care. I think people like calling me Dr. Phil just because, <laughs> just because it gives them a good chuckle. <laughs> and then they picture me with a mustache. But that doesn't bother you? No, it doesn't. Okay. I don't have that much ego. Right on. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here. Um, really excited to sit down and chat with you. And we have some, some cool topics that hopefully we're going to dive into. But before we do any of that, uh, for, the, for the folks listening, why don't you share a little bit about yourself? You, uh, you've been involved in CrossFit for how long? Um, I was trying to figure that out recently. I want to say around eight years. Wow. So a long time you've been, you've been in, the, in the CrossFit game. And uh, I know just through talking with you, it's, it's kind of transformed your life in different areas and whatnot. So tell us a little bit about your background, both with that and how you got to be kind of where you are uh, doing what you're doing with your business. Yeah, so um, I'd say the biggest thing that happened to me that changed my trajectory, which I normally don't bring up um, at all in conversation, but I guess it's important to understand how I got where I'm at, um, is that when I was in, a, in my second year of medical school, I got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And that... Um, sort of quickly changed my interests because I was so focused on getting healthy, getting my blood sugars under control. Um, so I got really into nutrition and really into fitness. And although I was still really interested in uh, procedural things, surgery specifically, um, ultimately I didn't stay up at night reading research papers about the latest uh, you know, knee orthosis uh, you know, for surgery, it was, it was you know, what, what diets can alter diseases and things like that. Um, and I had heard about CrossFit and I really never liked working out. I hated lifting weights. I thought it was the most boring thing in the world. <laughs> and then I saw some videos, I saw some, you know, sort of before and afters of people transforming. And I'd always been into sports. I played soccer and lacrosse in high school. Um, but I just decided to start start doing CrossFit, so I joined 810 CrossFit in Flint, and I was just hooked immediately. Um, I love the competitive aspect, the coaching, the camaraderie, uh, the socialization aspect of it, and uh, I've been doing it ever since. Not always super consistently, but currently, I'm I've actually been really consistent. So I've been getting in like three three to five days a week. Sweet. Um, so that's, that's sort of my, my CrossFit path. And that's really helped me, you know, if I get up in the morning and I do a, a wad, um, it, it totally changes my blood sugar control throughout the day. Um, and that's because of all the changes we know that take place when you do high intensity and varied exercise. Um, it, you know, it changes the hormones that your body puts out, um, and changes sort of the metabolic machinery of your body. Uh, so wait, can I stop you real quick? So exercise is not just for burning calories? No. No. Okay. In fact, uh, that just doesn't really add up, right? <laughs> so if you eat a donut, it's like if you do the math, you pretty much have to run like a half marathon to burn all those calories off. Yeah. So um, so no, it's – it's, yeah, it, it's, it's sort of for everything else. I tell people you eat for – 
for weight loss and you exercise for all the other benefits that it has. Yeah. And I mean, I'm poking a little bit fun at that. I know, yeah. um, being a little sarcastic and cause I do think that, you know, a lot of people, especially with Fitbits and Apple watches and these things that can, that track your calories, it's very easy to fall into that trap of, Oh, I'm trying to lose weight. I know I need to manage my energy balance. And if I can go to the gym and burn 500 calories, Blah, 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 blah. And I think you just touched on a lot of the other benefits that people are not paying attention to for exercise. And it just shines a light on it. It is such a bigger thing for mm-hmm. our health and longevity than, oh, yeah, I burned four or 500 calories. And to be honest, most of those trackers aren't even close to what's really going on as far as caloric burn. But anyway, we don't have to right. dive into that. Continue on with, um, yeah. with your you know, exercise and diabetes and how it's kind of basically helped you kind of manage that. Yeah. So, um, uh, I think, I mean, I think I'm about wrapped up on, in terms of that, but I'd say, uh, you know, that, that diagnosis of, of type one diabetes definitely changed my, my career path. So whereas more, I was, like I said, I was more focused on, you know, um, getting into a surgical specialty. Um, I just found myself thinking I can't do this for the rest of my life because although I enjoy the procedures, I'm not really that interested in it. You know, it's sort of like, I enjoy woodworking on the weekends, but I don't really want it to be my career. Sure. Um, so, so I ended up choosing family medicine um, for various reasons. It was sort of a process of elimination, but for me, I really enjoyed the um, the varied aspect of it. The fact that you get to take care of people from birth to to the grave. Um, there was a little bit of obstetrics in there, which I enjoyed. Uh, and, and just sort of getting to know an entire family, treating the entire family and having that inform your decisions uh, really appealed to me. Um, and I definitely wanted to help people out with their diabetes because I felt my life experience would be invaluable uh, and that I could offer something that other doctors couldn't. Um, so anyways, I, I ended up choosing family medicine and I sort of quickly realized that um, I, I was I was out in Oregon actually. I did residency in Colorado and then took a job in Oregon to stay in the mountains. And I quickly realized that the uh, sort of group insurance based practice, which is very typical uh, unless you're employed by a hospital, just wasn't something that was going to be sustainable for me in the long term. And uh, so after about a year and a half, uh, I ended up moving back to Michigan. And that was for some other personal reasons as well that we decided to leave Oregon. But, um, but I found myself back here and I always knew I wanted to start my own practice. And I had heard about this model called direct primary care. Mm-hmm. And there was a guy at my old practice who did it um, and was wildly successful with it. I went and talked to my buddy, uh, Paul Thomas down in Detroit, who I, I had, you know, that was the first time I met him actually. So that was, Uh, I think January of 2018 that I met up with him and he had been doing it since he left residency. Um, And, and then I spoke to a few mentors of mine, kind of told them what I was going to do and they all said, do it yesterday. And so what direct primary care is, is it's sort of like what um, Seth does with, uh, with physical therapy, what, what Dr. King does. So, you know, he was on the last podcast yeah, and yep. so he's, he's sort of gotten rid of the middleman 
the middlemen uh, involved in physical therapy. And so that's the exact same thing that direct primary care does is it gets rid of the uh, insurance companies, the durable medical goods companies, the um, pharmacy benefit managers, the retail pharmacies, the group purchase organizations. There's so many middlemen involved in medicine. Um, And so it's kind of like, you know, Jeff Bezos says, their profits are my opportunity. <laughs> uh, and so that's kind of the way that we look at it. We, we think that medicine's overpriced and we see an opportunity for a new product. And uh, it's sort of the goal of the direct primary care community. So there's, there's about a thousand of us around the country doing this, maybe wow. a little bit more now. Um, only 300 when I started, and that wow. was only a year and a half ago. And our goal is essentially to put um, the whole idea of insuring for primary care um, out of business. Yeah. So we want everybody to be seeing a direct primary care doc. Uh, and what that looks like is it's a monthly membership fee, uh, in exchange for essentially unlimited visits along with wholesale, uh, generic medications, labs, and imaging. So just to give an example, um, my average patient is paying me $50 a month. Uh, so that's $600 a year or less than your cell phone bill, about half your cell phone bill. Sure. Um, and they can contact me by text, email, uh, FaceTime, uh, or, or just, you know, see me in person at my clinic. Um, they also get the discount on medications. So one patient, I, I can use as an example, um, she paid $350 for five generic medications at Henry Ford Pharmacy mm-hmm. when she got discharged and I got her those same medications for $9. Uh, <laughs> and that's with my 20% markup for, you know, bottles and labels. Um, and then lab wise, it's, it's super cheap. So, um, you know, I, I see some, some bills every now and then, uh, I saw one recently where a priority health paid $500 for, I think it was four or five different labs and I can get that exact same panel done for around $20. Wow. Um, and that's with Quest's $9 draw fee. Yeah. So, and then imaging is, is kind of the same. So it's like $40 for a chest x-ray, $300 for an MRI, um, you know, really reasonable, nothing that's going to put people out of house and home. Yeah. And I think just from, from knowing you now for a little over a year, um, I think the biggest thing that you offer that, aside from the cost savings that could be had is just the personalized approach to someone's health. And the fact that you will spend however much time is needed to work through someone's issues and really develop a game plan and versus kind of the traditional model, which is 10, 15 minute appointments, max, very low relationship building. Like, and and I think that's the biggest benefit to working with, with you versus yeah. Someone else. Yeah. So the concierge medicine has been around for a long time and the, those guys are typically, um, they're, they're seeing people for long periods of time and things like that, but they're also billing insurance. They require that you have insurance when you see them so that they can bill it. We call it uh, a hybrid model or double dipping. They take care of the quality and the access issues in medicine, yeah. but they don't take care of the cost issues. So, um, you know, if, it's it's a great model to follow if your goal is just to sort of uh, make really great money and have a great living. 
Um, but if your goal is to sort of change the face of medicine, then you got to take care of the cost issue as well. So, but I do find, I mean, most people don't complain or even talk about the cost. They just talk about how awesome it is that they get to sit down with me for an hour or that they can call me when they're on vacation to take care of an issue that they're having. Um, so, I mean, those are really the things that people are looking for. Yeah. No, I think that's. That's huge. And everyone who I talk to about what you're doing, it's it's a very similar response, especially yeah. if it's someone who cares about their health. I mean, everyone, I think, cares about their health, but some people kind of just look at the doctor as like something I got to do once a year is go see someone versus the person who I don't want to just be healthy. I want to thrive. Like I want mm-hmm. to know how I can optimize what's going on. And I truly want to have someone who's in my corner versus someone who's just going to make sure I don't die <laughs> type of thing. So yeah. huge difference. Yeah. And it's tough. I mean, when people in the insurance model, they're seeing 20 or 30 people a day, they don't have time to right. discuss optimization. Yeah. You know, they're just trying to rifle through people and triage and yeah. refer off to specialists as much as possible so that they don't have to deal with stuff yeah. because they don't have time for it. Um, you know, they don't really have a choice. Yeah. And then they're spending all their day on their electronic medical record. That's like, that's essentially their patient, you know, whereas I get to actually only be on my EMR for like 5% of the visit. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a really nice model. And it, to be honest, it's, it, it also solves the issue of physician happiness. So, I mean, every, every DPC doc says, well, I did this because I'm selfish. It's because I wanted more time with my family. It's because, you know, I didn't want to have to keep listening to the hospital administrators tell yeah. me what to do and what to say. Um, so we really think it's going to save primary care, which we think otherwise is just dying on the vine. Nobody wants to go into it because yeah. it's, you're not respected, you're not paid well. Um, and you have to come out of school with a quarter million dollars in debt. That's a lot. <laughs> um, all right, cool, man. Well, thanks for, you know, thanks for that, for just sharing your story personally, but then also just giving us a clear picture of what it is you're doing and, and why you're doing it and how yeah. you're trying to help people. Let's get into maybe some topics that, you know, the the general public maybe sees as confusing or there's maybe some, you think there's some misconceptions on. I know you and I in the past have kind of talked about, you know, cholesterol being one thing that is so like, I don't know, I just, I feel like we still don't have a clear picture of what's going on when people get their cholesterol readings back and they show that either they're high or they need to be put on a statin or what does this stuff even mean? You know, is, is that a topic you want to maybe share some, some insight on? Yeah. So there's a a quote that I heard recently that I really, I really like, and it's, um, the world has lost its appetite for nuance. And I think in medicine, as in many other areas of our lives, we, we don't, you know, the devil's in the details and we kind of want this formulaic thing where we can say, okay, you know, the LDL is bad and the HDL is good. And okay, so we want that high and we want the LDL low. And it, it's just not that simple. Um, I think if you, if you approach medicine with a, with a humble respect for the processes that are going on and always assume that you don't have the full picture you're much closer to the truth than if you, if you think you've got it figured out. Um, so there's still a whole, you know, we, I would say, you know, we know a lot more today than we did before in terms of cholesterol, um, you know, absorption, transport, maintenance, all that. 
um, but we're still there's still there's still so many questions. So the other thing you could say is, um, you know, the further out you go from shore, the deeper the waters get. So the more you learn, the more you learn you don't know. Um, so true. So so yeah, I I guess I'll just I'll kind of give a quick overview of what I do um, and what we know. So. Um, the, the, what I start out with with my patients is just explaining that, um, you know, cholesterol and fat are sort of two different molecules. You have cholesterol, which is based on a ring structure and um, the typical fat that we think of is called triglyceride. And that's, uh, you know, in organic biochemistry, we say it's a, got a glycerol backbone and then these fatty acid chains that come off of it. And that's where you get the terminology of saturated or unsaturated fats. Um, these things don't mix with water and your blood is, is water-based, right? So it needs a transport molecule in order to be trafficked around the blood. So you can think of these things as like little spaceships that are dropping off primarily triglyceride, but also a little bit of cholesterol. And these things are called LDL particles. And so, um, We've known for a long time that the particle count is what really matters in terms of your cardiovascular risk for plaque formation and subsequently, you know, heart attack and stroke. But most docs aren't checking for a particle count. Um, you know, some are now. Uh, we used to do a lot of it when it first was invented, maybe 20, 30 years ago. But then it kind of became came out of vogue because the test was kind of expensive and insurance has kind of stopped covering it. Mm -hmm. Well, now it's pretty cheap. I mean, I order one on my patients and it costs $16. So I order one every time because that's going to inform my decision much more accurately than getting the typical lipid panel, um, which is essentially the equivalent to if you opened up all those spaceships and measured the mass of the cholesterol and the triglyceride that's inside of it, and, and you took that measurement, which, um, you know, you could say is sort of an indirect marker of the particle count, but it doesn't correlate in everybody, especially those with metabolic disease like diabetes, um, central obesity and things like that. So they can, they can trick you where they have a really low LDL cholesterol number, but their particle count is super high. Uh, I had a patient who had four heart attacks and he had never had a particle count checked on him and they had driven his LDL cholesterol down really far, um, you know, using pharmacology, um, but they hadn't been able to drive his particle count down hmm. and nobody really caught on to that. So as soon as I checked it, sent it to his cardiologist, his cardiologist sent him to a lipidologist who most people don't know that those, that specialty exists, but <laughs> it's somebody who sort of specializes in just cholesterol management. Um, so that's just sort of one of the misconceptions. I, you know, if you want to talk about CrossFit and cholesterol, um, I can't remember his name, Jeremy. Do you remember the guy from The Biggest Loser um, who had a heart Harper. attack? Harper. Bob Harper. Bob Harper, yeah. So Bob Harper had a heart attack, and he always thought his cholesterol was great. If you look at the guy, he was just, you know, he looked like a specimen. Um, it turns out he had an elevated LP little a, which is a specific cholesterol marker that tends to be inherited and often overlooked and not checked. So that's another thing that I check on everybody um, at least once just to make sure that it's not sky high. And that's a really problematic molecule. There, We still don't have a drug that targets that specifically 
they're developing one currently. There's a company out of San Diego doing, I think they might be in phase three trials with it, but, um, but still, you know, it, it's something that everybody should be aware of. And mm -hmm. the whole idea is, well, if you have that, then you've got to manage all your other risk factors that are actually modifiable. Um, so, you know, that's, I mean, there's so much more, I think, um, the, the study of, of lipids and how they're trafficked around the body might be the most complex thing in biology I've ever tried to wrap my head around. <laughs> um, you know, I, I was t telling Jeremy, I listened to, I think it was 10 hours of a lecture on lipidology somewhat recently. Um, I mean, there's just so much, there's so much to learn and you can't really learn things on first principles. Sure. You have to just memorize. <laughs> so that's the tough part about biology. And so you used kind of the term when we were talking prior to, to starting the recording, you know, art versus science when it comes to, you know, cardiovascular disease and cholesterol and pretty much most things related to health. What do you, what do you mean by that? And I, we kind of dove into that as far as being like, you know, it's a, it's much more complicated than black and white. Like there's a lot of things that are going on. So I think just not to make a blanket statement of just, it depends because, but it, but it kind of does, right? Like yeah, there's a good cop so, out. there's, yeah, it, it is. And not, you know, I think that's the, the common answer to most things, but there's a lot of truth to that, right? Like mm -hmm. there is, you can't just say, oh, because your LDL is high and your HDL is low, you got to do this. Like there's so much more going on, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's just not just for cholesterol, but for, for a lot of things. Yeah. So it's tough. Um, preventative cardiology, one, it's, it's tough to find a cardiologist that sort of specializes in prevention. Most of them specialize in treatment, um, especially cause that's, you know, that's where the money's at, right? Mm -hmm. You get paid, you get paid a lot more to put a stent in somebody's coronary artery than you do to manage their cholesterol. <laughs> um, and one's much more sexy, frankly, than sure. the other. Um, so it's sort of like owning a nightclub versus a car wash. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a different industry. Well, and I think the other thing there too is, you know, and this isn't, you know, not being judgmental on people, but a lot of times people, they just, they want to fix. Mm -hmm. Like they don't, they don't want to have to change their whole lifestyle yeah. to manage things. Like yeah. it's, I just want to, I just want it to be fixed doc. Like yeah. don't tell me that I need to eat more fruits and vegetables and exercise more. Cause that's going to be really hard work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it just kind of aligns with that, that model, if you will. Yeah. So, and so as far as the art and science is concerned, it, it's the whole idea that you have to really look at the person as a whole, you have to measure a whole lot of labs and you have to see how they react to certain, certain drugs, how they react to certain diets. You know, for instance, some people do really well on a ketogenic diet. I saw somebody recently who is uh, Southeast Asian, um, of Southeast Asian descent and um, they've been doing ketogenic diet now for two years. They feel great. They've lost a ton of weight, but their particle counts 3000. It's triple what it should be, hmm. you know? So some people just have a different reaction. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, it's, it's, it's really tough, right? So I just mentioned LP little a and Bob Harper. There's a whole nother sect of people that have a really high LP little a, and they live to be over a hundred. So if you look at centenarians, which uh, 
that that's uh, people that live to be over 100. Um, there's sort of two groups when you look at that specific lab. You have people with you know zero LP little a, and then you have people with a really really high LP little a, which tells you that in that one group of people that has high LP little a, you're either going to get a heart attack at 40 or you're going to live to be over 100. <laughs> and we don't know how to parse that out. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's tough, right? Because right. if I saw that person in clinic, I'd say, we need to get you on aggressive therapy immediately. Well, what if they're in the centenarian category? Right. Uh, so so that, that kind of gets back to your whole idea of people just want a quick fix. They want a quick answer. You know, medicine is... In my mind, it's essentially just a study of probabilities. Oops, sorry about that, Jeremy. It's all good. Um, so, so yeah, it's it's definitely still an art and not a science. You know, you look at some other areas in medicine; um, they're a lot more algorithmic, and you know, you sort of got you know three or four answers you can get to relatively quickly. Whereas with cardiovascular disease, you know, you could do everything right and still end up with a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's kind of end this topic real quick by by you like let's just say someone's listening to this and they're used to going to the doctor for their physical and they get a basic panel and it kind of just tells the you know the same old story and what's could they ask their doc to to look at the particle count like you suggest like what would they go if if they want to be more proactive what can they do with their doctor mm-hmm. if if they're you know if that's the case they could um, you know, there's two problems. One, you might get a dirty look from your doctor cause they might look at you like, why the heck do you want that? Yeah. And why are you sort of trying to drive your own care? Cause, um, you know, we, there's a lot of pride involved in going to school and taking on a lot of debt. Um, you know, you also might run into, I've never even heard of that lab before. So I, I had an endocrinologist in Colorado and I asked her to do an LDL particle count and she looked at me like I was an alien. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And then I mentioned, uh, I think I mentioned ApoB, which is sort of a, a very similar lab. And she said, oh, yeah, I think I, I think I remember getting a question on that in my boards. Basically meaning she never ordered that on a single patient yeah. ever in her entire life. Yeah. So you can definitely ask for that stuff. The other limiting factor is insurance. So insurance often won't cover it. And the lab is going to charge insurance a heck of a lot more than what my lab charges me. Yeah. Um, So you might have to pay through the teeth for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why transparency and cash-based pricing are so um, appealing to me. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, you can definitely request that stuff. I think there's now actually, there used to not even be an ICD-10 code for LP elevated LP little a. And for those that don't know, ICD-10 is sort of the billing and coding um, that is come up with for all insurances, Medicare, uh-huh. Medicaid, uh, they used to not even have a code for it. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's why we've known about this disease for 20, 30 years. So they finally have a code for it. Um, so you can definitely get that checked. I'd say out of all the labs, that, that might be the most important one, just because if you have that, you know, you definitely want to start taking your health pretty seriously, yeah. knowing that you're at increased risk for the number one killer. Yeah. 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 And I think that's just a good point. Like you mentioned a couple of things that, you know, if you go to your doc and you ask them to do, you inquire about a, a more in-depth lab or whether it's not even this topic, but something else. And they give you the stink eye or they don't know what you're talking about. That 
probably a good sign you may want to find another resource for your for your healthcare. I mean, yeah. you know, and and I can totally understand, like you said, there's a lot of pride involved of being the expert and being the doctor and you know, someone coming to you as if they have all the answers, but I think it should be a partnership, right? Yeah. It should be a partnership. It's not a dictatorship where doctors in charge and they tell you everything that you should be doing. It should be a partnership where you have say in what's going on. It's your life. And and I think if they're going to be refusing to that, yeah. that's a good sign that maybe you need to find a different partner. I heard a great analogy last night, um, but, you know, everybody talks about the matrix, red pill, blue pilled, um, you know, and I would say that a lot of these docs are still, you know, they haven't taken the red pill. They're still in the insurance model. They think it's the only way they might hate their lives, but um, they just they haven't really seen through it that there might be another way out. Um, but when Morpheus is talking to Neo and he says, look, all these people that are still plugged into the Matrix, um, you know, and the, and the matrix can take their bot take over their bodies at any at any moment. He says, but we're still trying to save them, right? So it's this whole idea of you can't just ignore this whole group of people or throw them under the bus. Like we're still trying to mm-hmm. save them. So it's tough, you know. Like right. I try not to throw their docs under the bus, and of to course. me, it's just the model that they're practicing in that limits them. But um, I think until they take that red pill and sort of you know see the light proverbi- proverbially. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, we're not going to make a whole lot of progress. So. Of course, for sure. Um, right on. So that's super, super beneficial information. Um, if, uh, another, another topic we were discussing, you know, previously that I think would be uh, a benefit to, to chat about a little bit is, you know, hormones, Right. And, and you were kind of sharing, relating that to, to cancer and some other things. But I think this this phrase hormones and these different whether it's, you know, testosterone or estrogen or cortisol and some of these common, you know, sure. buzzwords, if you will, um, are, are being thrown around. And I think there's a lot of confusion and misconception on some of these things. And so um, I don't know if that's something you want to maybe dive into a little bit. Yeah, I don't want to spend too much time on hormones. I'd say a couple of points to make. One, um, I often run into people that put a little bit too much stress on checking hormones. So often they have an issue that they, I think, you know, it goes back to what we said where people want a quick fix. So, you know, say they're gaining weight or, um, you know, they're not sleeping much or something like that. And it's easy to say, okay, well, if you're going to bed at 2 a.m., because you're staring at your smartphone, that's why you're not sleeping well, but then they want their estrogen checked or their testosterone checked or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it is. And it's like, no, this is a waste of money. <laughs> right. Just get off your phone. Um, with that said, you know, hormones are definitely important. They, you know, pretty much run our bodies. And I think that there's a lot of misconceptions about it. And I think that our understanding of them is still fairly rudimentary. So, um, like there's a, a guy that I sort of follow online who has a, he's, he's huge, right? He's like six, four, 220 pounds. He's a champion Olympic indoor rower. Um, just totally ripped, has no signs of low testosterone, but his testosterone level is only like 350. And you, you look at this guy who looks like a Greek God and you'd think it would, his testosterone would be through the roof. 
Well, there's some studies that have come out that show that testosterone receptor um, density may play a huge factor in terms of, um, you know, the action of testosterone. So with hormones, you know, you have this um, cholesterol-based structure. So hormones are all based on cholesterol and they bind to a receptor. And so if you think about it, if you have fewer, you know, docking ports, um, then it's going to take longer for that hormone to sort of find a parking space and it might not be able to act as quickly and efficiently. Whereas if you have a whole bunch of these, say, parking spots for the hormones or the cars, then they're going to be able to find a space pretty quickly and, you know, get out and do their thing. So, um, so that's one thing. Um, so in that case, it, with this gentleman you're talking about, yeah. he may have a lower overall level of testosterone, but right. he has a lot of parking spots for those to go find. Exactly. So there is, as soon as they need to find a spot, yeah. they're finding a spot where someone could have really yeah. high testosterone, but if they don't have very many parking spots, it doesn't yeah. really matter. Yeah. And I might see a guy who comes in and says he's tired and lethargic and he's got, you know, a testosterone level of 400 and he says, okay, well, I want to go on, you know, replacement. And I say, well, you know, we don't really like to replace testosterone in somebody who's unless their testosterone is less than 300 mm -hmm. and, and you've got, you know, all these other things going on in your life. You've got stress at home, uh, you know, with your relationships, with your work, you're not sleeping much. And if you would fix all those things, maybe you could get your testosterone up. Um, so it, a lot of it goes back to the quick fix thing. Um, there's a lot to get into with hormones and menopause. Um, that's like just a whole nother topic. Um, but I guess to keep it brief, I'm very much for hormone replacement post-menopause. Men have sort of a linear decline in their testosterone throughout life, whereas women go from essentially normal levels to like zilch, mm -hmm. you know, and that's why they get all these awful symptoms in menopause. Um, the Women's Health Initiative was this big study that came out that supposedly showed an increased risk in breast cancer um, in one group uh, of women. And so everybody freaked out, doctors stopped prescribing, women stopped taking it. And still to this day, I have a lot of patients that have even refused to take it. You know, even though they're miserable, they're waking up with hot flashes mm -hmm. and things like that. And they won't take it because they think they're gonna get breast cancer. Um, and that's just not true. There's a whole body of evidence that that study was, the study was flawed. There wasn't a, what we call a statistically significant difference but it was the most expensive study ever done. It cost a billion dollars and the authors were heavily biased and wanted to make a splash in the media. Mm -hmm. um, when was that done? Do you, do you know how long ago? I want to say it was early 2000s. So almost 20 years, F good 15 years ago. Yeah, I would right guess on. like 2004, 2005. Right on. Um, so one of the other things I, and you know, Jeremy and I had just talked about like some misconceptions and things like that. So, um, some of the things that I think are really interesting that we really don't understand, um, you know, one, we still to this day, mainstream oncology says that estrogen causes breast cancer, right? So anybody who has breast cancer, we put them on an estrogen blocker, uh, an astrazole or lenastrozole. Um, if breast cancer is caused by estrogen, then why are women most likely to get it when their estrogen levels are the lowest? 
So age is the biggest risk factor for breast cancer. And women typically get it post-menopause when they have almost undetectable levels of estrogen. So how is it the driver, the main driver of breast cancer? Mm -hmm. Also, if you think about it, in pregnancy, women are flush with estrogen. I mean, you never have more estrogen in your body than you do when you're pregnant. Mm -hmm. So why are pregnant women not getting breast cancer left and right, right? In fact, when you get pregnant, women with breast cancer tend to do better in pregnancy. So I, I think hormones are more complicated than we give them credit for, I think. Um, and we know that estrogen at different levels has different effects. Sure. So, you know, estrogen of, you know, 10, um, I can't remember the units it's measured in right now, but, you know, an estrogen level of 10 versus an estrogen level of 100 is going to have a very different effect on the body. Mm-hmm. And then similar with men, um, we say that testosterone causes prostate cancer. We put people on t- a testosterone blocker uh, when they have prostate cancer. And that's not to say that that drug doesn't have some efficacy. Um, but why then are men most likely to get prostate cancer when they have almost undetectable levels of testosterone, right? I mean, almost every single guy dies with some amount of prostate cancer. Typically, we don't die from it. But if you do autopsies on almost any male who's passed away at, you know, post the age of 80, you can find some prostate cancer, some very slow, slow growing prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so why, you know, why do we say that it's caused by testosterone? Is there, is there something more to the picture? Sure. Yeah. Very so. good. Interesting points. And I think just goes along with that notion of, you know, it's a lot it's a lot deeper than just black and white. This right. causes this, like it, there's it, the body is such a complex system of systems that it's nearly impossible for some of these types of diseases or sicknesses or whatever to just say it's this equals this. Um, so it just kind of further sheds light on that. Um, so as we get a little bit closer to wrapping this up, what I wanted to ask you, are there any things, that you've recently kind of changed your mind on, whether it's, you know, disease related, fitness related, just maybe could just be philosophy, life related, like any things that you've, you've found recently that you're starting to kind of change the way you look at something or or what you believe in or what, maybe whether it's scientifically backed or not. How much time do we have left? Yeah. Right. (laughs) Well, let's just, (laughs) let's start with one and uh, we'll see where that goes. I'm assuming there's a few things going on in your, in your brain that have maybe, uh, you know, turned corners. Yeah. So, um, I would say the most recent thing is maybe some of my thinking on diabetes and this is a bit technical, but, um, I'm trying to, if I can put this into words that everybody understands, if you know somebody who has diabetes, what they complain about is Are we talking type one, type two, or it doesn't matter either. Okay. The complaint is always my sugars are high, right? Or the, you know, my sugar's high, my sugar's high, right? This is kind (laughs) of what doctors joke around about with their patients. My sugar's high. Um, And they say other stuff too. They have like other words for sugar. (laughs) So anyways, the, the whole thing is it's the problem is not the high sugar. That is a symptom of the problem. So type 1 diabetes is sort of a different beast. But at least with type 2 diabetes, uh, 
you know, this, I guess what I'm going to illustrate is a little bit more straightforward. So the story is really about the insulin. So type two, type two diabetes, we think that there's lots of different causes from it or for it. Um, but, but, but we certainly know that most of them are correctable with diet, um, and maybe some medications. So insulin is this hormone in your body that's incredibly important. It's both anabolic to fat and muscle, so it causes you to both build muscle and fat, whereas something like testosterone makes you build muscle but lose fat. Um, actually, bodybuilders use, use insulin as a performance enhancer. Um, so it has two effects, it, two main effects. Um, it builds fat, so we call that lipogenesis, and that's typically done in the liver. Um, and then the other thing it does is it allows glucose um, into the cell. So like table sugar is 50% fructose, 50% glucose. Glucose is sort of the energy source of life. All of your cells can absorb that. Your liver is the only thing that can process fructose. Um, but glucose is in a lot. Um, that's what starches are made up of, long chains of glucose. So it's, it's building fat and it's, it's allowing glucose into the cell. Now we, we use this term insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. And I think that that term, this is where my, my, my thinking has changed. I think that that term really shouldn't exist because what you have, they call they say insulin resistance because the cells are not allowing glucose in, right? No matter how much insulin you throw at it, it doesn't want to let that glucose in. But these patients are still building fat. So you've got 50% of the function still there. Mm -hmm. And the idea of calling it insulin resistance would, would imply that the effects of insulin are not working. Right. Right. So think of it. So I, I got a lot of this from Jason Fung, who um, has written a lot of books recently and is a big proponent of fasting uh, for fixing a lot of metabolic issues. Uh, he's a nephrologist in Toronto, Canada. But um, he, he uses this analogy of a suitcase. So if you have a suitcase you're trying to pack and you're packing it full of clothes and it's essentially packed to the brim, uh, but then your wife walks in the room and she says, I want you to throw these two dress shirts in there. And you're like, there's no space. Well, what are you gonna do? You're gonna open it up and you're gonna start jamming it in. You know, maybe you're gonna, you know, sit on it or sit on to get it the zipper. or yeah. throw a hundred pound dumbbell on top of it to try and compress it or whatever. I don't know, crazy stuff people probably do to pack their suitcases tighter. Um, and, you know, and you're gonna try and get it in, but you know, this, the, the suitcase is like, no, I, I don't have space for these dress shirts. They don't fit. So if you can think of your cell in, the, in a similar way with glucose, your cell only wants so much glucose in. And after a certain point, the cell is telling the body, no, I, you know, I don't want any more. So like I said, estrogen can have different effects at different levels. You could, you could imagine that there's a feedback mechanism where the cell is telling the insulin receptor to stop working because it's all filled up, mm -hmm. you know? So, um, and so this changes treatment because what we commonly do is we give people more insulin when they're type two diabetics. And all that that's doing is trying to pack in more dress shirts into the suitcase. When the issue is you've got too many shirts. So you need to take some shirts out. So 
you know, if you um, use that analogy, the, the problem is that you're ingesting too much sugar and you need to get rid of it, you know, or your liver is producing too much of it. So um, rather than trying to give people more and more insulin, which, you know, it, it sort of works over time. If you give people enough, it, it will drive the sugar down, the, the blood sugar. But, um, but it's, not really get, it's not really solving the issue because they're going to continue to gain weight and they're going to continue to just have a ton of glucose in their cells. The answer is to get rid of the glucose in the first place so that the insulin is not so high. Mm. Um, and so we do this by, you know, lowering caloric intake, changing to a low carb diet, um, fasting. So whether it's intermittent fasting where you're skipping breakfast or dinner and narrowing your eating window or you're, you know, people that are really severe, they just, you know, if you've got like a diabetic foot ulcer, um, you know, Dr. Fung puts people on a week long fast, like immediately hmm. and, and, and reverses their disease very quickly. Hmm. So, um, so I tend to turn more towards the drugs now that help people get glucose out of their bodies or stop it from getting in, in the first place, rather than turning to insulin and trying to drive more and more and more glucose into the cell. Um, so, and I've had great luck with it. I had a patient recently who came to me on 15 units of insulin and we've got him off of his insulin now completely wow. with normal blood sugars and he's down 30 pounds. And the big driver there was limiting intake of yeah, basically carbohydrate. Exactly. And, or was there any fasting involved with him personally? Yeah. So I, I think I tried to get him to fast a little more, but he, he was struggling with it. So I, we, we settled on a plan of just intermittent fasting and low carb diet um, I put him on a drug for a couple of months that um, basically keeps the kidney from reabsorbing sugar. It's mm -hmm. called an SGLT2 inhibitor. Uh, it's really the first drug we've had in a long time, first new drug that, that helps to drive glucose out of the cell. Uh -huh. um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, we had, we had great success with that. So rather than just telling him he needed to increase his insulin, which would sort of be more of a mainstream approach, we said, no, we need to start limiting your glucose intake and getting that glucose out. Now, when you're doing that with someone, is it, is it merely the carbohydrate that you're trying to limit or is it specific foods? Uh, is the overall number of carbs the, the main focus or is it specific foods that have carbohydrate in them? So one sort of begets the other. Okay. So if you limit carbs to a certain level, that means there's whole food groups you can't eat because they have so many carbs in them. Sure. So if you're, you know, I limit, I, I try and tell people stick to less than hundred grams of carbs a day. I think that that's a reasonable goal that's sustainable. The, and then the stricter they are, you know, so if they go down to 30 or 50 carbs, the, the weight's going to come off faster and the diabetes will normalize faster, but it's often not sustainable. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you're sticking to that diet, I mean, you can't eat a potato. You can't really eat, you know, a whole lot of bread. You can't eat a donut or a bagel or anything like that because they've just got so many carbs in them. So I, I sort of limit the food groups um, to help them out because if they, if they, if I just say eat less than 100 grams of carbs a day, they're going to be a little lost. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of tell them sort of what that means in terms of changing their diet, mm -hmm. how they can achieve that. Um, yeah. Interesting. Now, I don't know if it's the same when it comes to diabetes, but you know, 
is it fair to say that, let's say, you know, you have someone with type two diabetes and you mentioned this gentleman lost 30 pounds mm-hmm. in the course of you working with him and him getting off insulin. Now, do you think that if he would have just lost 30 pounds, let's say he found a way to lose 30 pounds without reducing his carbohydrates to hundred grams or less. Mm-hmm. Do you think him losing 30 pounds would have the same effect on his need for insulin or was it the fact that he was limiting carbohydrate that caused the, the, the outcome of getting off insulin? I think, I mean, that's a tough question. One, because I don't know how he would have lost the weight without changing his diet. So certainly he could have, you know, if you do any sort of restrictive diet, if you cut out fat, for instance, you will lose weight, probably not as much as with carbs, but, um, but yeah, I think, I think definitely his diabetes would have improved if he lost weight without cutting down his carbs. Um, but I can't say it would have improved to the same level. Sure. So for instance, I, I've dealt with people who have improved their diabetes without losing weight through diet. Um, simply just by having, you know, a better low carb diet for the most part. So even if with, with calories staying the same Mm -hmm. by shifting the macro content and getting carbohydrates lower, even if they don't lose weight, they could still see benefit. Right. So I listened to a, this was really interesting. I listened to a, um, an interview with Rick Rubin, who's a famous music producer. Yeah. In uh, Malibu. Yeah. It was like a three hour long interview. And he used to be severely overweight. And this guy, um, I don't know if any, any listeners know, Dr. Maffetone, he came up with the Maffetone method of running, which is about sort of um, increasing your aerobic capacity. Yep. Anyway, so he was severely overweight. He became friends with this guy, Phil Maffetone. Phil Maffetone came out and lived with him. He got him on a super low-carb diet, and Rick felt much better. And a lot of his lab work and stuff improved, but he hadn't, he, he lost a little bit of weight, but then he sort of plateaued. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was really confused by that. Uh, but, but it's a prime example of how you can make somebody feel a lot better, probably make them a lot healthier internally, but not necessarily change their physique. Um, and sometimes people, I think if you're so far gone, it requires a little bit more of an extreme um, a little bit more of an extreme treatment plan than just limiting carbohydrates. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's two ways to change diet. You can change what you eat and when you eat. And so I, I have another patient who started out, um, I think 310 pounds. And, um, with him, we just went to straight, uh, seven day, 10 day fasts. Uh, and he lost, I want to say 40 or 50 pounds in a couple of months. Um, you know, and for him, it was, you know, I think if we just did a low carb diet, it wouldn't have worked Hmm. um, because his, his cellular machinery was so far swayed to the one side of the pendulum that, um, sort of, you have to sort of shock those people Mm -hmm. out of the state that they're in. Interesting. I mean, and this is obviously, you know, this is a topic we could, we could probably talk a lot about. And I think some of the things that were coming in my head as you were sharing some of this stuff is for some of the listeners, I think that, you know, changing your diet for your overall health and changing your diet for your aesthetics are two different things. And a lot of people might hear, 
seven day fast equals extended weight loss. And they may think, well, man, I've been trying to lose weight and get my six pack. So maybe I should try doing, you know, three, five, seven day fast for that. And I think that there's a big difference between I have a severe medical issue Mm -hmm. that I need to fix. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I may try an extreme method of fixing it versus I want to look good for my Instagram pics. (laughs) So let me do this quick fix things like stop eating for a week. And when it comes to weight loss more for you know, aesthetics and confidence and these types of things, the studies are pretty clear that if you're not finding a sustainable way of eating and exercising and living, going up and down and up and down by trying these quick fix things is not the way to do it. Um, so anyways, that just kind of popped in my head as you were saying this of what could I be thinking as I hear some of these things? Yeah, certainly. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about some pretty severe disease here. Right. We're not talking about... Uh, <laughs> I would say if you if you want to look good for the weekend, go hit the gym. Sure, <laughs> like, right. You know, and not eating is not fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I um, tried a twenty four hour fast recently, and from two to four p.m., I it was just miserable. Yeah, I just I was just chugging Topo Chicos <laughs> because it made me feel full for like all of thirty seconds. Right, and then you know a minute later, I'd have to chug another one. It was it was rough. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting topic, and I, I have to say that you know all the evidence shows recently that when you eat seems to be more important than what you eat hmm. um, overall. You know, sure. so if you're only eating one meal a day, you can be a lot more lenient on what you're eating. But I I don't want to eat one meal a day. Yeah. <laughs> I like to eat. You know, it's tough. Like that's a, that's a tough, tough thing to to do. And for the most part, the only people I know that do it are bachelors, you know? Sure. You got a family and yeah, it's, you know, well, and I think that's a great point that maybe we can kind of leave on is for, for you listening of like in today's day with podcasts and Facebook and all the different methods of people getting information to us, you're going to hear a ton of ways that people are successful. You're going to hear someone say how they went to a ketogenic diet and it changed their life. You're going to hear someone say that they changed to only eating one meal a day and, oh my God, I have more energy than ever. And Mm -hmm. and the list goes on and on and on. And I think the moral of the story is there are a lot of different ways to find success with your nutrition and your exercise and your health. And you have to find the one that's most realistic for you and your lifestyle and where you are in life, knowing damn well that, like you just said, that the best thing for you when you're 24 and single may not be the best thing for you when you're 34 and have a family. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. We have to be open to finding what is going to make us thrive knowing that the human is a, you know, the human being is a very complex thing and not everyone is the same yeah. in that regard. So cool, man. Well, um, we're going to leave with something quick. What is one thing you currently personally are working on uh, to, to improve yourself, whether it's health related, fitness related, knowledge related, professional, whatever, what's one current thing that you're, you're focused on? Um, well, for me, I would say carbs are always tough just because, you know, I don't make any insulin, so they never really sit well with me. So, uh, fall time is tough with, uh, the apple cider, the cider mill donuts. Yes. Just, uh, everywhere you turn. Oh Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would say, uh, I would say that, and then just trying to 
to really dive deep into some of these topics that we just discussed and um, try and sort of flesh them out better, um, get a better understanding of them. Awesome, man. Uh, for anyone that's listening who, who likes what they, they've heard and want to maybe search you out or learn more about you, where should they go? Where can they find you and uh, Paradox Health? So uh, you can go to my website, which is pretty simple. It's www.paradox.health. Um, and that's got all the information um, for my clinic. Um, I've got a Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. It's all just paradox underscore health. Um, so you can follow me there. I do post not super regularly, but <laughs> try and get at least a post out a week. Um, and yeah, that's about it. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate your time. And I'm sure we'll do this again uh, in the future. Sounds great, Jeremy. Thanks right. for having me. See you later.